highly respected. I'm not your host, Scott Greer. I'm your favorite governor again, Ron DeSantis, to here to deliver you an important message about the state of Israel. I want to say I am Israel's most trusted friend and most favorable governor in the United States. And to prove that, I've brought along another 511 Chad. I've been told this term Chad is popular among the based Zoomers. And I've brought my fellow 511 Chad, Ben Shapiro, to also stand with Israel. Ben, take it away. Thank you, Governor DeSantis. There have been a lot of attacks on the greatest state in the world ever to be created by a lot of basement-dwelling incels who should be locked up and put away for good. Nobody should attack, dare attack the state of Israel. We love Israel. We love Israel. That's all you need to know. And I am so glad that Ron DeSantis is planning to arrest every critic of Israel in the state of Florida. This is how we can make America great again. This is how we can give America a significant lift in our boots. Facts and logic say that Bibi Netanyahu is the greatest leader to ever exist. And if you don't support Bibi Netanyahu, then get the hell out of America, because that's who we support. Palestine does not exist. If you think differently, then Governor DeSantis is going to throw you in a jail cell for a very long time. Well, thank you, Ben. That's some great commentary. Very based commentary from you. Very strong. And that's so true. In the state of Florida, we're using state power to crush people who criticize the greatest country to ever exist. And I have to say, Israel is so friendly. When they had a picture of my wife pegging me, instead of going to the press, they they came to me and said, hey, all we want is for you to help out the great state of Israel. That's so friendly of them. That's how they are so good to us. And Donald Trump keeps attacking me, but Israel provided me with new boots that gave me three additional inches. And I have to say that's why I love Israel, and I hope you guys do as well. And some of my meme smiths are coming up with some great memes to win over the Zoomers. We've got a meme that has a Palestinian soy jack going, looking at me. And the soy jack is saying, are you really going to arrest me for saying I don't like Israel? And then they have me, Chad, looking side profile going, yes. And I've been told that all the Zoomers will love this meme. So we're going to win Iowa. We're going to win New Hampshire. We're going to win so many states that you're going to just love Ron and his campaign. And we're going to just win so many times. You're going to get sick of winning. And now I have a final message from Ben Shapiro for you guys before we get to the show. Thank you, Governor DeSantis. I just want to say, hail Bibby, hail our people, hail victory. Wow, that was, uh, that was quite the message from Ben and uh, Ron DeSantis. I'm glad we got some 5'11 chads around here. We haven't had many uh, chads on this program lately, but fi- thankfully we got some and Ron and Governor DeSantis and Ben Shapiro. I don't know if our audience is going to like that message that they delivered, but 
Uh, we're glad that they came on. We need, you know, people have been saying we need more guests. So we finally got uh, some big some big gets in uh, Governor DeSantis and Ben Shapiro. So that's it. So we're going to go and have an incredible episode, an informative episode for you guys today. I don't know if Ben Shapiro would have said it's going to be an incredible episode, but we're going to have one anyway. And today I'm going to talk about, you know, of course, obviously Israel is the number one topic. Uh, so we can't get away from it. Uh, you know, we've been trying to get um, our foreign correspondent, Liam Strumpet, in Israel. I've been hearing he's got a report for us. But, you know, due to the guest appearance from Ron DeSantis and Ben Shapiro, I don't know if we're going to have uh, uh, this uh, message today. But we're going to see what happens with uh, Liam Strumpet. But this week, I'm going to discuss a domestic matter. I mean, the war is continuing on. Death tolls rising. Protests are getting more severe uh, throughout the, <laughs> throughout the world. I mean, this weekend, I mean, there were just tens of thousands of p- people all throughout the world protesting Israel and the airstrikes, even in uh, Washington D.C. You know, there's tons and tons of people, and a lot of people are getting upset over some of these Palestinians. You know, go- climbing up on uh, the statues and and throwing their flags around, and some people were acting like this is the worst thing ever, and it's like. Do you guys remember Black Lives Matter? You know, it's annoying what they were doing, but at least these guys were not trying to tear down the statues like they were trying to do during BLM, and everyone was cheering that on, and now they're like, this is the worst thing ever. Uh, But they are getting aggressive. I mean, they are showing that, you know, they're climbing the White House um, fence and stuff. And uh, I always do think that in terms of the backlash against the airstrikes, I do think there's going to be kind of these lone wolf terror attacks that we've seen a lot before. I don't think it's going to be of the type of sophisticated nature that we saw in the Bataclan massacre in 2015. It's going to be more like some idiot in a car tries to run over people or worse. Do you have a gunman like the uh, nightclub uh, pulse nightclub shooting in 2016? I really do think as this war carries on, you're going to see a lot of these type of, people get radicalized and try to do that stuff uh, here in America and in Europe, which is why we really want a quick end to this war, because it's just going to be bad all around with more refugees, more terror attacks, uh, more insanity from political commentary. I mean, people just continue to lose their minds over this stuff, but I've talked about that a lot in the past. But this week, I'm going to talk about the topic of Islamophobia, whether it's real why people keep bringing up, whether it's really actually even present in America anymore. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is that uh, the White House, along with a lot of liberals, are warning about the rise in Islamophobia. They've even formed a little council and commission to investigate and to counter Islamophobia in America. And you have to wonder, it's like, where is the Islamophobia coming from? Where are they seeing this? I'm not sure where the Islamophobia is. But it's... Funny that this is being brought up because even I was watching at the gym. This is where I always get my great TV is at the gym. And I was watching CNN and they ran a whole segment on Islamophobia. And apparently at Stanford, there's some Arab student who was poss- who's run over possibly a, a hate-filled incident of some sort. And they're just saying there's just so much danger to Muslims. And they brought on some woman in a, in a burqa to talk about how awful it is to be a Muslim right now. And we're also seeing the talk of anti-Semitism at the same level. A funny thing about this is that both sides are the ones responsible for the alleged anti-Semitic attacks, which 
are not anti-Semitic incidents. It's just like somebody burning an Israeli flag or something. Generally constitutionally protected speech. And it's the same with most of the uh, hate attacks against Muslims. It's mostly coming from Jews and uh, most of that is also constitutionally protected free speech. And But both sides are coming together to blame white people <laughs> for their respective hate. You know, they want to betray the real perpetrators of these incidents as white Americans. Is that they, you know, even though they're not uniting together, they are uniting together and believing that it's the same false culprit responsible for all this hate, which white people are just not involved in this at all. They're very much confused by this. I think the average middle American is extremely confused by what's going on, very befuddled. You know, a lot of the evangelicals are very tied to, you know, Israel and Israel support. But I think for like the generic Republican voter, they're very much confused about this. They're they're very much scratching their head, wondering what the hell's going on with all these brown people marching in the streets. Uh, they're like, how do these people get here? Why are they supporting Hamas? I think they're also confused at how intensive focus there is on this anti-Israel stuff. Because even if they have any memory of this, you know, I've talked to some older boomers about this. You know, if they have any memory of what's been going on campuses for the last 10 years, they're like, well, why weren't people complaining about all this harassment against conservative students or against white students and all this hate being spewed about this? Why is this the, the, the final straw that, you know, now that they're criticizing Israel? And I think they're very much confused and befuddled by this. It, it, for Republicans, they're still supporting Israel for uh, a variety of reasons. Um, but they are very much confused and worried about this situation. I don't think that they're as they're not really taking part in this. I mean, this really is both in, in the foreign conflict and the domestic conflict over this. This is being a fight between Jews and Muslims. And the standard white Americans are out in the you know, corner staring in just confusion at this fight. And but both sides are just saying you're responsible. You know, they're pointing at the white bystanders like you guys are responsible for anti-Semitism. And then the Palestinians point. And it's like you're responsible for the Islamophobia. And they're like, hey, we're not involved in this. <laughs> Why are you blaming us? But that's all about how America can make hate speech a real thing is to blame white people. And I wrote this in a column last week. You know, it's like uh, the stop Asian hate thing. You know, there were all these hate attacks against Asians in 2020, 2021, still continuing in 2022. It hasn't been really happening that much this year. It still happens to an extent. But, you know, for over two years, it was happening against Asians. And every single attack except for the spa or the massage parlor shooting, which had nothing to do with Asians. It was just this incel who... Uh, really had a problem out for the massage parlor. No, and he kept insisting, like, no, I, I didn't realize, you know, I had no animus against Asians. The prosecutors and investigators, like, yeah, this wasn't hate-driven. This had nothing to do with Asians. But everyone's like, they finally found a white guy responsible for anti-Asian uh, violence. So they're like, they fixated on it. And they're like, this is this is how all the anti-Asian attacks are. When in reality, it was all blacks. But who did they blame? They blamed Trump and white people for that. So anytime there is a surge in hate, it, it's rarely responsible from whites. It's usually responsibility of another minority group. But that minority group who is the victim will blame white people. And so that's what's happening with the Islamophobia and anti-Semitism surges that they're all blaming white people. I mean, 
there's this new ad they put out about these missing posters. It's like, stop tearing down the posters. And who they have tearing down the posters? No, it's not brown women. It's two blonde haired women who are tearing down the posters. And it's like these sorority girls doing it. And you know, like, I don't think those are the people tearing down the posters, but they have to blame white people for this stuff because anti-white racism is a huge part of our society right now. It's a fundamental belief of the left. And in order to make your side seem more moral and also more comfortable with the dynamic, the intellectual dynamic we have in our society, it's you have to blame white people for your for your bigot for the alleged bigotry you're facing. And so both sides are doing that. And it's probably even more ridiculous with the um, the people crying anti-Semitism because it's literally all coming from POC. All of it's POC. I mean, there's this new, there's this hilarious incident that just like encapsulates how crazy America is. You know, you guys all saw the black Israelites who, uh, which I was surprised by. The black Israelites are called anti-Semitic because they view, view the Jews as fake Jews and blacks as the real Jews. And uh, I would think that they would be pro-Palestinian and because they're so uh, anti-Jews. But no, they're anti-Palestinian too. And they were fighting in Chicago. You know, Palestinians and black Hebrew Israelites were fighting with, with each other. It's uh, one of the absurdities of America. But there's another absurdity to this is that a Muslim woman ran into a giant Star of David uh, at a facility thinking it was, you know, a Jewish synagogue or something. It turned out it was actually a black israelite facility and you're just like man this is such a, a funny country we really are a funny country with all our diversity and multiculturalism so that is uh something that is there so all these sides are trying to raise the specter of this hate and bigotry that's not really present among white americans uh, but they're still wanting to blame white americans because they feel it's more potent for their side to see them as the villain and as the real culprit rather than another minority group, another protected minority class. But we'll now get into the Islamophobia thing and how it's like totally not real uh, in the same way that the rising level of anti-Semitism isn't really real either that they're trying to blame this for. But we'll just focus on the Islamophobia thing because for the over the last 20 years, we have been barrage with the threat of islamophobia and i would say in after in the aftermath of 9-11 there was a lot of genuine hostility towards islam and i'm not saying that's a bad thing i'm just saying that's a natural response to this terror attack you know if you thought that like all these muslims killed 3,000 americans and you saw that they were celebrating in the Muslim world and you thought that, you know, this is a fifth column within America that wants to kill uh, innocent civilians, then why wouldn't you have a hostility towards Islam? And so it's very much a, you know, obvious response to the problem of that time. And they really had to go out and tell people like, hey, it's a religion of peace. You know, they really told politicians that they had to do this. Because there was a legitimate fear at that time that there were going to be this violence against Muslims. There were a ton of Sikhs who were like running 7-Elevens who were killed in gas stations who were killed at this time over people believing that they're Muslims. And if you had a political figure go out there and really blame Muslims, you know, major political figure, it probably would have raised, you know, you know, there probably would have been a number of mosque burnings and stuff. But that never happened. One, it's a, like Americans... Uh, Modern Americans are really not capable of that type of mob violence anymore, uh, or at least among white Americans. <laughs> and that's just not things that 
would happen. I mean, you would have lone actors doing it, but it was really discouraged at the top level. And people do listen to those figures. And especially at that time, there was more trust in the authority. You know, Internet really wasn't the way it is today. So people, they said like, oh, George W. Bush and other Republican leaders are telling me it's a religion of peace and we should just blame the terrorists and that's okay." And also we turned directed all that hate towards domestic Muslims, towards foreign Muslims in Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran. Of course, we didn't invade Iran, but, you know, we saw them as the great villains, as as the enemy. And so. That's where all that hostility was directed. It was misdirected into foreign policy goals that were not quite um, in the interest of Americans, but that was where it was funneled to. But at that time, you would have generally seen violence. And I think there were, you know, all these Muslims complain about living in America at that time. They're like, oh, I was, I was called names, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, it's an obvious response from America. It's like, you know, when you are in a foreign country, you're not the majority of the country and your people are responsible for a, a horrible terrorist attack. And then you're crying over getting called a name in your school. It's like, well, that's that's the price for living in America. If you don't like it, you can leave. It's, I, it's like if you're complaining about this, then leave. This is our country. You are visiting. You are a guest. And you're wanting to complain about some name you're getting in, in, in high school. It's just like an obvious response to outsiders and foreigners, especially if they see them as um, responsible for all this terrorism in the world. But they all complain about it and they're all like, oh, it's horrible living in, in America post 9-11. It's like, well, you know, it's horrible what happened on 9-11. It's horrible what happened with all the terror attacks. And you, uh, <laughs> you guys, uh, you know, that's what happens when... <laughs> your your class of people when your religion strikes at the country you're living in and so that's uh that's something that they didn't want didn't want to accept but of course none of them ever left america they just stayed to enjoy our benefits while complaining about our country and hating the people who built it very typical for minority groups unfortunately but islamophobia i don't like using the term but we'll say anti-islamic sentiment was still extremely strong in our country even a decade later, because in uh, 2009 to 2010, early 2010s, there was a lot of opposition towards mosques being built in this country. The most famous example is Ground Zero Mosque, which there was a mosque sort of within the general vicinity of Ground Zero. They all argued over how close it was. And people were losing their minds that there was about to be a build a mosque. They're saying this is a sign of conquest. This is an insult to the victims of 9-11. We don't want the mosque here. Now, that was just one example, but there was hostility towards it all over the country. In my area in Tennessee, Middle Tennessee, there were, there, there were several incidents of this. Primarily, the hostility was towards a mosque being built in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And Murfreesboro was a very, you know, kind of a blue-collar white area. Uh, you know, it is really middle America. It's not quite so much um, maybe middle America today. It's a fairly uh, large, I mean, it's not a small town. It's not a rural area. Uh, the biggest university in Tennessee is there, MTSU. I think it has at least 50,000 people. It probably even has more than that. Uh, so it's like a sizable town city. It's within an hour away from Nashville. And it was about to be built a mosque. It was very conservative. Now the surrounding county in that area is very conservative, deep red. And there was strong, strong opposition. There was 
lots of protests. They were sabotaging the construction site. There was these really large meetings throughout the state and opposition towards this. I went to, um, I don't know if it was assembly or a speech or, or a rally. It was an indoor rally and it had like over a thousand people there. And they were bringing out all these famous anti-Islam speakers to call out and say, like, we don't want this mosque. I went to even a, in my area, there was opposition towards a mosque. And out, it's nearby Murfreesboro. And I went to like the city town the town meeting about it and was hearing all the arguments in favor or against the mosque and so this was a huge thing in the early 2010s and also there was this fear that a barack obama was a muslim and that was still a part of that latent very strong anti-islam sentiment and there was polling done at the time i think by gallup that showed that 43 percent of americans felt that there was you know felt would admit to prejudice towards Islam, which you have to think is uh, most Americans think prejudice is a negative. So they would say, I'm not prejudiced towards Islam. I'm just anti-terrorism. But you had 43% of Americans who are willing to admit that to a pollster. So it was more likely a majority of Americans were like that. And this carried on. And we had more terror attacks uh, throughout the 2010s uh, with the rise of ISIS and, you know, terror attacks both in Europe and America. And people were really much afraid of this. And there was also... And even Fox News really carried this stuff because there were just random attacks. I remember there was one story in a factory and there was a factory worker who had just recently converted to Islam, was like a black guy, and he beheaded like another a white co-worker. And this was like the top news on Fox News. And so there were these real stories and people really were, uh, had a fright over Muslims. And Trump really played into that with his Muslim bay because, you know, there's all these terror attacks. There's this real strong hostility towards Islam. They're feeling that these people are permanent fifth columnists who are going to, and they're seeing what's happening in Europe where these no, these no go zones are happening. They're not assimilating. They have these very foreign ways and they're a breeding ground for terrorism. And so people gravitated towards the Muslim ban. And he won the Republican primary. Really, I mean, he was probably going to win it otherwise, but he really became the outright front runner when he announced the Muslim ban because everyone thought that this was over. You know, primary's over. He, you know, this is finally the thing that's going to end Trump. And he was always the front runner, but it was like around 26% of he was getting support. But once he announced the Muslim ban, he finally got into the 30s in every poll. Every poll showed him pulling away. You know, it was like him 10, 15 points ahead of the next person. And it was all due to the Muslim ban. And even into the 2010s, you know, when his travel ban, that was not quite a Muslim ban, but was directed at Muslim at a lot of Muslim majority countries, you know, it still had majority support among Americans. And you really had that. But at that time, even though there was a rising terror attacks, you know, Pew Research had a poll showing that there was growing warmth towards Muslims. From the early 2010s, it was 40% felt a warm feeling or, 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 or positive feelings towards Muslims. By 2017, it's 48%. And with the disappearance of homegrown terror attacks from Islamic radicals, uh, you know, you'd have to go all the way back to the early 2010s to find one like that uh, in America. I mean, there was a few. I mean, there were two right after Charlottesville, <laughs> and they both killed more people than Charlottesville. There was one guy who set all these bombs around New York City 
One almost derailed a train, but it, like a hobo found it before it, it blew up the train track. And so it could have killed a lot of people and Muslim radical. And then a few weeks later, there was a guy who ran over people. I think he killed like eight or nine people in a car attack. Once again, a lot more people killed in that car attack than at Charlottesville. And he was also driven by Islamic radicalism. And I'm sure there are examples. I mean, you could say there was like that anti, uh, nation of Islam guy who ran into the Capitol uh, over a Capitol secu- uh, police officer in 2000, or 2021. Uh, but outside of that, there hasn't been really any Islamic terror attacks in America. I mean, they fought a bunch, but they're also not having the constant news of it. And in the mid-2010s, there was a constant news of, We've arrested this guy who was pledging allegiance to ISIS. Most of these guys were idiots who were entrapped by the feds, of course. But there was a steady drumbeat of this fear of Islamic terrorism. And, you know, six years have gone by with, you know, the, you know, defeat of the pretty much the defeat of ISIS. And, you know, without any domestic terror attacks, with foreign terror attacks also declining. But there's been more in Europe um, you know, there's been random teachers stabbed to death over showing, you know, Muhammad cartoons and such. They, you know, that this is not as much of a present fear among Americans. And even with the hostility stirred up by the Palestinian protests and people not liking that, that's less of a sign of Islamophobia than leftophobia, because the Muslim equation isn't even figuring in here. If you look at all the mainstream discourse, it's all like, look at how crazy the left has gone. And they're really eager to find queers for Palestine or, you know, these blue haired septum piercing, you know, art hoes who are in the crowd, who are the ones there. And it's even the propaganda that they're wanting using. They're wanting to display, portray these people as white. And they do that all the time with all these protests. I mean, even with the BLM riots of 2020, they wanted to portray those people's rioting as all white people. Uh, which for Antifa that was true, but uh, the ones looting stores were not white. <laughs> it's uh, and Floyd was, himself was not white, and so uh, uh, I don't. That was very weird. But they always want to portray the white, uh, the left as uh, you know, the all white force. And so here it's not so much of a of a fear or hostility towards Muslims, which isn't really getting figured into the discourse. It's all about the left. And wokeness gone and gone astray and gone wild and how we need to stop the left and the left now hates Israel and the left is now anti-Semitic. It's not about how Muslims have gone crazy or they're anti-Semitic or anti-Israel. It's the left has gone has gone insane. And so that's how the discourse is situated. It's nothing have it's nothing to do with Muslims here. And so the 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 retort of, of saying that it's you know, causing Islamophobia is just a way for the pro-Palestinians to do their own form of PC judo against the Israeli side, against the Zionists. And the Zionists say, like, you're anti-Semites and you're like Hitler. It's like, no, you guys are just like Hitler and you're committing a genocide. And uh, and then they both point their fingers at white people instead of at each other. And you're like, why are we getting blamed for this? So that's how it's working. You know, it's all about hostility towards the left. It's a political division rather than something you know, religious or ethnic in, or, in origin. It's all about folk, that focus on the political division and saying that the left is responsible for this and we need to hate the left more. The left is our enemy because of this. And it's even a part of that intersectional argument that they're trying to make is that saying 
BLM and LGBT stuff and all that is supporting the Palestinians, which is true, but it's a part of broadening the focus to include the entire left and to seeing it as white leftists is responsible for this when no, it's pretty much entirely Muslim immigrants to this country. And there's a lot of other non-whites coming out in support for it, but it's pretty much all POC that's responsible for tearing down the posters, for protesting in the street and that stuff. But it makes for a more convenient target to imagine it as white leftists. Or if for the Zionist case, white right-wingers uh, as responsible for all this uh, hostility uh, uh, towards uh, the Muslims or towards Israel. So Islamophobia is not going to be a result of this. I don't think at all. I mean, we're not, we're just not the same country anymore. I think, I don't know how this would have reacted in the early 2000s. I mean, Israel had a ton of terror attacks at that time and we were mostly focused on our own stuff, uh, our own terror attacks. So I don't remember much of a response for it. And I think it's just the massive growth in Muslim immigration and just in Im immigration in general, and that they're all a lot of young people. They're all situated at college. They all have a lot of time to go out and march uh, for their cause, that this is something that wouldn't have happened, you know, 20 years ago. I do think that the protests are leading to a more extreme and vitriolic debate over this topic than would have happened 20 years ago when we didn't have that many Muslims, you know, they wouldn't have seen that mass campus protests and stuff because there weren't that many there. And now that they've doubled in population since that time, and there's this BIPOC coalition that's willing to come together for Palestine in a way that there wasn't, it wasn't as strong of an element back in the early 2000s. That's now the case. And so you're seeing that backlash. But as I said, it's a backlash towards the left, not towards Muslims. And it's just that over time, people have changed with white Americans, particularly white conservative Americans. And you can see this with the school board protests. I, this you know, warm feeling towards Muslim may have disappeared over uh, the Palestine issue with conservatives. But prior to this, all these conservatives were soyjacking and going uh, and fawning over Muslims for protesting LGBT stuff at their schools at their kids' schools and saying, like, we oppose this. We don't want this in our schools. And they're coming out there and all these conservatives like, we need an ally with Muslims in, in our fight against wokeness. And there are several of these people who are saying this stuff. And now that's, that's uh, not as strong of a feeling anymore for obvious reasons. But there is a lot of people who are saying stuff like that. And now that that's moving on, but I think even though that might not be at the forefront, it might be harder for some white conservatives, uh, you know, in the near future to see, you know, people in, in headdresses and, and, and Muslim men, you know, shouting at LGBT stuff to get like super pumped for it as they were just a few months ago. But I still think that it illustrates a warmer feeling among white conservatives towards Muslims. And I think that is a disappearance of this uh, this concept that I have. You know, I've just formulated this. Maybe I've talked about this a little bit in podcasts, but I want to clarify something. Is that in America today, there is a strong decline in personal identitarianism. A better way would say personal racism or racialism or racial feeling. Personal racial feeling among whites while there is an increase in theoretical racial feeling or a more present feeling of that. Because 
immigration restriction among conservatives, among Republicans, is being articulated at a higher level than any time since a brief period in the mid-90s. And that and before that, there wasn't that much immigration restriction. And you can see that why the 65 Act and the 1990 Act and the 86 Amnesty passed is because all these guys would have just said, oh, immigration makes us stronger. We love immigration because they didn't have this feeling, uh, understanding that it would actually, you know, permanently alter America's demographics in a way that they thought was possible. I mean, in the 65 Immigration Act, they had argued that, like, no, this is not going to change America's demographics. And of course it did. Um, but they had to convince people to vote for it because they were like, it's not going to, you know, greatly affect America's demographics. And that was a real fear that people had. But now you have mainstream Republican politicians talking about the Great Replacement, talking about these issues, saying how we're going to lose our country and be demographically replaced. And this would have been topics that they wouldn't have said 10, 20, 30 years ago. But at the same time, among ordinary Republicans and you know Republican lawmakers and, and conservatives, is that there's less apparent personal racial feelings and you can see this not like saying that they you know love minority groups or something but they're less inclined to the type of behavior that was the norm in the 1960s you have to think of just like looking at the south and how much violence there was committed over just a black guy sitting on a lunch counter and i'm also not saying of course not saying this is plus or minus but i'm just saying that type of feeling of these people just being so outraged and so mad at just like a black guy sitting on a lunch counter that they would attack him and beat him up viciously is and now today, you know, nobody would give a shit. You know, maybe if he was like dressed uh, a little thuggish and they were worried he might be, you know, carrying a gun, obviously there would be a lot of suspicious of suspicion of him. But that type of just, you know, the people going into these counters were like trying to present themselves as the most respectable possible. You know, they're dressed in suits, you know, they're looking clean cut. They're not showing themselves as a threat. But just the fact that they're a black person being in their space drove these people to violence and outrage. And this is generally motivated. And a lot of these people who would have done this would have said, oh, America, anyone can be an American. You know, this is a land for opportunity, land of freedom. But if they saw, you know, a mixed race couple walking down the street, you know, they could be driven to a murderous rage and stuff, which today, um, obviously, somebody who could say, you know, theoretically are online, you know, theoretical identitarianism is that, you know, America is exclusively the domain of its founding stock. But if, you know, they saw, <laughs> well, you're going to see mixed race couples all the time. I think they're just going to kind of, you know, shrug their shoulders at it. So it's a decline in personal racial feeling or personal identitarianism, as you would say. Uh, but there's more appearance of theoretical identitarianism, a theoretical feeling on great replacement, on black crime, on all these different topics of just saying how you know assimilation and multiculturalism doesn't work. Not that there was really much multiculturalism in the 60s and 70s and 80s, uh, well, 60s, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of these people would just come together and really tell you, you know, Southern St. Gracious would just come and say, like, yeah, all men are created equal. Then why are you doing this? 
Uh, it's our traditions. It's our f- feeling. And this was one other thing is that these people in the 60s, 50s and 60s, were strongly defending a way of life and an order of things that was being altered by the federal government. Today, what we are resisting is almost the status quo, the way of things, the order of things in life. We're not quite defending or trying to conserve a a way of life that is present today. We're trying to almost create a new way of life, a new way of thinking for people. It's, you know, I've always criticized the revolutionary thinking, but there is a type of mental revolution, uh, a theoretical revolution that has to happen in order for us to achieve our ideas, which is very different from people in the past who were defending segregation or uh, even defending school, you know, busing and and stuff that was happening in the North. You know, they were really defending the status quo that they had before in the present order of things. And due to that change, they were would violently react towards it. I mean, just look at what happened with the Boston busing riots and other in in other cases like that. And this wasn't even you know unique to the South. Is that even going up into the North? A lot of these people who were voting for politicians would say, "We're going to have civil rights now. It's a disgrace what's happening in the South. We're we're for this." And these people are strong Democrats. And then they try to integrate their neighborhoods in the North, and these people riot. But at the same time, they're voting for politicians who are making integration possible, which today, you know, people will live in probably a more diverse area or have more non-whites around them. But they're voting for a politician who would resist, you know, trying to put Section 8 housing in their in their area, who would resist trying to have refugee resettlement in their area. And that's more likely to be the case. Uh, now, I mean, some of these things are just new. I mean, refugee resettlement wasn't really a thing, much of a thing in the 60s, uh, but became more of a thing after Vietnam. And so, you know, rural towns didn't have to worry about like, uh, you know, 10,000, like a thousand Somalis coming to their area, which they now have to worry about. And this is not even just a change from the 60s and 70s. This is even a change from the 90s and 2000s. You know, it wasn't even till the early 90s where a majority of Americans approved of interracial marriage between blacks and whites. I have to say it was between blacks and whites. In the 60s, it was under 20% throughout the 60s and 50s. And when they first started polling, I think it was around 1960, it was like 4% of Americans approved it. Today, it's 94% or 93 or 94% of Americans who approve of it. And that's something important to keep in mind. You know, we always talk about, oh, there's going to be massive racial separation and balkanization in this country. And really, the best way to gauge this is views of interracial marriage and interracial marriage rates itself. You know, this is a figure from 2019, so it's likely higher even today. But 19% of new marriages are interracial. Granted, not all of them are between whites. I think Hispanics are the group most likely. Hispanics and Asians are the groups most likely to have interracial marriages. But who are they mostly having interracial marriages with? It's with white people. And there's even, a, you know, I think even at least 10%, you know, there's debates over how many of the children born to a white mother are mixed of race. Uh, it could be upwards to 10% because 50% of the births last year were to a white mother. 
And there was a debate over whether it was 10% of them were, you know, or, well, it wouldn't be 10%, but uh, whether only 40% was to both parents being white, or maybe it was a little bit higher to uh, as high as 45%. But a significant number of those births are to a non-white father. And so that is like a, a representation of the racial feeling in America. And that's not saying that, oh, it's all doomed. We're all over. It's just a different way of how life is going to be. I think those those that type of uh, racial mingling or mingling between groups could subside and maybe not be as present in the future, depending on how things go. But it does show how the type of we're going to divide America into, you know, these well cut off ethno states everywhere and everyone's going to move around. And it's I think even it's apparent on the Internet. But if you look at actual Americans, it's not going to happen. Even if you look at like some of these people who are race realist and, and white nationalists, uh, I would say even uh, maybe at least a fifth are married to non-whites and you know it's like oh i'm a firm you know white nationalist and then you look at your wife the wife and it's like uh your wife is cambodian <laughs> it's uh where does she go in the ethno state and so i think it's something that's happening with the people is that that you know it's not quite what was going on in the balkans you know the balkans you know, people always point out those things, but those people were had strong divisions with each other. Like they were frowning upon marriages between groups. You know, that would result in violence between them. They and and these three groups all were technically genetically the same. You know, Croats, Serbs, uh, Bosniaks. They all spoke the same language. They all looked about alike. You know, there's not the clear differences between them, uh, as you can see between Black, White, Hispanic, and Asian in America. Well, these people were all trying to commit genocide against each other. We're trying to ethnically cleanse each other from the areas. And you look at them, and it's like, well, it's all based on religion and a different, you know, history and social standing. And, uh, you know, there's all this heritage of history of bad blood between them. But the groups were relatively, you know, on the same on paper. But here in America, you know, clearly the groups are very different, but there's much more intermingling. And it's still due in a large part to how the new assimilation is working in America is that, and this is not a good thing. I have to also admit, this is none of this is good, and our, a lot of this is not very positive. And I'm not saying that this is like present and it's like all giving up. I'm just explaining what the situation is. But the new assimilation that's happening in America, it's not, and, and this is contrary to what some of the people have been complaining about. I don't want to say complain because that's undermining the thing, but have been warning about in years past where. You know, they're thinking that there's going to be this permanent Hispanic, unassimilated minority that is continuing to speak its Spanish and it's not assimilating into American ways. And there are strong elements, uh, you know, where they, you know, people continue to speak Spanish and stuff. And it resembles Mexico. I mean, if you go to Houston or some parts of Texas, you'll think you're in Mexico. Um, certainly in California. But the children generally assimilate to America. You know, they speak English. They're listening to rap music. They're smoking weed. <laughs> They're eating McDonald's. Uh, they're eating too much McDonald's. Uh, but that's like the say, you know, they're generally assimilating to a new form of a of American assimilationism. Unlike in the past when Europeans came here, and even this was like the case for most Ellis Islanders. When Ellis Islanders came here, they would embrace American heritage. They would see George Washington 
Thomas Jefferson, the founding fathers, the men who fought in the Civil War as heroes, as people to revere. And this was even the same as like people would be confused by these Italians who would say Robert E. Lee is a great man. It's like you guys weren't even here, but they felt that that was part of the assimilation process that they would honor those great figures in American history and that they would accept that as their own. And even the Columbus Day was a way to incorporate Italians into this American story. It's saying, you know, there's somebody who is like you who was important to America's founding. He was also European. And he was a part of the conquest and settlement of the New World. And you took part in that. But now with the new POC, which hate European settlement and conquest, and this drives a, a large part of their motivation. They don't want to identify with any figure. They want to see America as corrupt and evil from the beginning. And so the new assimilation is instead, all the figures are wiped away. All the heritage and, and great events are wiped away. Instead, we're just left with these vague ideals that we're all a part of. It's like, oh, we all believe in liberty and equality. But the people who wrote about this stuff, well, they're very bad. We don't like them. It's actually black people and other POC and indigenous people who made us realize these values. And now, you instead of assimilating into a broader American framework of you know and sharing that heritage, you're instead just assimilating into American mass culture and these vague ideals that really don't mean anything that are just platitudes. And that's the new American assimilation. And it's unfortunately working very well for new groups is, you know, the parents, you know, they'll be wearing the headdresses and other things of their past foreign culture and strongly identifying with it. And then the children are speaking the same way Americans do watching TikToks, enjoying the same culture as Americans, but they all occasionally, you know, fly a Palestinian flag and say, I'm Palestinian. But even with these new people who are protesting for, you know, Palestine, I do think the right is correct in not wanting to see them as Islamic radicals, as just seeing them as these leftists who are, you know, they're well, they're assimilated Americans who are clutching on to a foreign culture and a foreign identity as a way to differentiate themselves from generic white America. And it's a way of, you know, sticking up, you know, a middle finger into America. And it's also why, you know, Ilhan Omar wears a burqa is that she, I might, I, it might not be technically a burqa. I forget all the headdresses, but a headdress is that she did this as a way to differentiate herself from generic white America. She says this explicitly. This is why I started wearing it is I wanted to stand out and show that I was different from the rest of America. But she herself isn't a very devout Muslim. You know, she cheated on her husband. <laughs> well, she's, she had multiple marriages, in fact. Uh, she cheated on her husband with a, with actually a Jewish man and broke up that marriage. I don't think she really practices at all, but she wears the headdress as a way to signify that she is, you know, not like white Americans, but in fact, she is assimilated to the new America and she joins the same pop culture as the other 40-year-olds her age. So we've had a lot of sidetracks here, so I need to get back into conclusions. And one is about this difference between personal and theoretical identitarianism. And I think it's, you know, personal identitarianism is probably good. I think it is very uncouth. I mean, if you were in like a, you know, a restaurant and some guy was dropping slurs and uh, over like just some random non-white being in the restaurant, you'd be like, well, this might not be the time and place for that. And you might be like, oh, come on, man, you get embarrassed. Most white people would just be very embarrassed by that and be very uncomfortable by that. 
and I think there, the, and it's also, you know, you don't really need to have a great country where it's like you immediately attack some black guy at a lunch counter or something. You know, that's a, that's not a really a requirement. For, <laughs> thankfully, that's not really a requirement for it. But you do need a little bit of a more personal identitarianism when it comes to when it comes to partners and that sort. And I think and, and who who you're f- forming families with, I think that will happen over time. But I think it's this is like clear when people are talking about like oh separation and we'll have our own little ethno states and it's you know why <laughs> even our own side isn't doing a very good job of forming an ethno state within our own families. <laughs> It's, uh, you know, I, I think it's a little bit different, but it's uh, the theoretical is important because it is about ensuring that a white or a, rather that America has a fundamental white character and that whites remain the core population and that, that we are the ones who define it and situate it for the future. And we could still and it's much better to do that from a theoretical level than from a personal level. It's a personal level where everyone is saying all men are created equal, yet you're, you know, having a riot over, you know, a black guy entering your your favorite restaurant. You know, that's not really helping America keep its fundamental character. But if you're, you know, saying that, you know, minorities are being treated well and stuff, but you have as a public policy that this is a, you know, the founding stock are what made this country great. It's what our nation depends on and we want to preserve them and advance them. Then you are a much better country because you're able to ensure that that population will be preserved. You're able to, to implement immigration restriction. You're able to combat claims for affirmative action and for teaching 1619 project nonsense to students and all that. So it's, it's very much important to have the theoretical level. You do need a personal level um, when it comes to family formation of other things. I know there's some people out there who listen to podcasts who maybe may have not made that a part of the Greer Head Pledge because I know people get very sensitive about that. But I do think for people who have not made that decision yet, you know, you should probably choose a white spouse or you should choose a white spouse. But I know that there's some fans who have uh, not done that. But, you know, that's just what America is like now. And in some ways, you have to pick and choose your battles. But I think for people who have not made that decision yet, it's something that they need to emphasize. But for others, you know, you you really do have to pick and choose your battles. And you really just have to move forward with what we have. And you got to hope for the best. But I think it is the the real mission of ours is preserving a fundamental white character to this country. And that it doesn't even require a full out white majority because... We are going to become a plurality soon, Um, you know, barring like mass deportations and stuff. And so we do have to prepare for that moment because a lot of people think, you know, I've talked about this in in a column, is that think that when, you know, whites immediately go down below 50 percent, that there's like a game over sign in the sky that comes out. It's like it's over. It's not over. We just have to adjust to a new situation and build up from there. And I think it's more it's very much important that we stress that our you know that our people and our identity is what's to the core of american existence and experience and we could do that even when we're a plurality we'll still be plurality we're still going to have a lot of power in this country we're not going to be a entirely dispossessed surf class even though some people want to do that even on our own side and there is going to be a lot of fundamental anti-white racism but i do think that the growing number of anti-white racism is going to give a sense of collective feeling 
to white Americans and that they are going to want to stress that we, in order to make to keep America a great country, to make America a great country, is that it must preserve its fundamental white character. And you can still do that with a plurality. And I think even over time that maybe that there's an increase in childbirth or maybe there's some people who decide to leave that you could restore a white majority in the future. It's not it's not game over, but we just have to prepare for that moment that could happen that's likely to happen within 20 years where we are another minority. And I think it's not to throw up our hands and say it's over or to focus on fantasies that we're all separating and stuff and forming our own little, you know, Slovakias in America or whatever. We instead try to take what is ours and preserve the fundamental character and explicitly emphasize it like we did in the early early 20th century and that could make America a much better country. So that's just a thought uh, that doesn't really have too much to do with Islamophobia, but it's something I want to point out. So I want to have that white pill there. I, I think, um, but it's just to stress that I think in order to have the type of racial separation or ethnic separation that you have with the Balkans, you would require much more of that personal uh, racialism and ethnocentrism, which is not really present among whites as it would have been present in the 90s, even in the 90s and 2000s. I think in the 2000s, like if people saw a Muslim family come into their you know, store, especially after 9-11, that that could drive them, that there was a greater chance. I don't think that they would have maybe attacked them, but they would have, you know, cursed them out and, you know, said, you're not welcome here. I think it's very rare for that to happen. It's even, no matter what happens in the Palestinian conflict, I don't think you're going to, anytime you're going to hear a story like that, it's going to be the same type of hate hoaxes that were happening after Trump, where all these Muslims were like, oh, I was attacked for my headdress. I was attacked for my burqa and it all turned out to be bullshit. If you ever heard that story, it would be bullshit. If you heard that story in 2002 or 2001, it probably was true. It might, you know, there's a good chance it was true, uh, but it wouldn't be true today. But on the nature of Islamophobia, it probably is best. Or there is a going back to that topic. I don't want to say it's best, but, you know, the anti-Islam movement and other people have pointed this out was ultimately stupid because it. I think that the people were right to see Islam as uh, something foreign and alien to America. But in terms of what our main problems were, it was not at the core of that. You know, it was not most of the people who were coming here that were demographically replacing us were not Muslim. Uh, it's different in Europe. In Europe, anti-Islam is explicitly tied to the identitarian movements and the nationalist movements because a large percentage of their pretty much the majority of their migrants, depending on the country, are Muslim. And I think even only the UK, they might not be Muslim, uh, but even a significant part of them are Muslim. But for the rest of the continent, it is pretty much majority Muslim. And so it gives them a way to say, like, we don't want the foreigners here because they are majority Muslim. But here, you know, it's very much a minority Muslim. And it was a way to direct this fear of outsiders and fear of changes that are happening in America and redirecting it towards neoconservative foreign policy goals. And that's what they built. That's why conservatives allowed it to flourish in the 2000s and early 2010s is because it was a useful tool to get these people on board with top staying in Afghanistan, 
fighting a war in Iraq, trying to convince them to go and invade Iran, trying to get them to go and support intervention in Libya, Syria, and elsewhere. And it made them support neoconservative foreign policy goals. Eventually, they turned on this when Trump proposed a Muslim ban, because no longer was this about saying, oh, we fear how these people are taking over our liberal enlightenment values, that they're a threat to gay rights and women's rights and all this liberal nonsense, which is a lot of the anti-Islam movement was doing, is that they're like, we don't like Islam because uh, they're repressive towards women, or we don't like Islam because they don't tolerate gays. And even some of the stuff in Europe is like that. Like there's this new manifesto put out by one of the big German newspapers that were like, we're not going to tolerate migrants who don't respect LGBTQ plus rights. And they're like, um, <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> Okay, and it's like, I guess that's your standard. And so it would use these liberal things and then it'd be like, well, what's our direction for this? It's like, you've got to support a war in Iran because they're the ones backing all this Islamic radicalism. But then they turned against this when Trump said, uh, no, it's not about foreign policy adventures. It's about keeping these people out of our country. Then it turned into an identitarian goal. Then it turned into nationalism and actually supporting America first interests. And then that's when they turned on the anti-Islam. I mean, they're like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. We weren't talking about anti-Islam as a threat to our liberty and civilization. We didn't, we, we, you weren't supposed to limit them from coming here. No, 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 no. You're just supposed to be mad about them overseas. Not at them here in, in America. And here in America, they become pure Americans and stuff. You're supposed to support the mosque being built. But when Trump turned it into something that matters domestically, then that's when they turned on it. And so it is useful when it comes to those matters of, of course, we want to limit uh, immigration for Muslim majority countries. Of course, we support the travel bans. Of course, we support uh, an absolutely zero uh, Palestinian refugee migrant policy. We so, And even some of the efforts to deport some of these people, like, you know, the reasoning may be cringe, but... If we actually do deport them, I'm not going to cry over that. I'm not going to complain because uh, getting them out of the country is, for whatever reason, is you know a plus in my mind. Uh, but I have a feeling that they won't even do that. But I do think that they're going to keep them out. So that's still good. But I think when ultimately the anti-Islam movement comes about is that it comes to the conclusions of we must support Israel no matter what. And we must support these stupid foreign adventures no matter what. And it makes them support the status quo and neoconservative foreign policy. And that was ultimately negative. And the good thing is I don't think they can do this again because uh, the leftophobia, even though I so, showed some like criticism of it earlier, I think that's a much better reaction towards the protests than Islamophobia because leftophobia, I, I think it is a combination because I think there is going to be more support for Muslim restrictions among Republicans. I mean, every nearly every candidate running for president or the leading candidates running for president for, um, among the Republican field is suggesting that. But I think it is a leftophobia is a little bit better response because it makes it clear that this is a domestic problem. This is not a foreign problem. This isn't a problem that can be solved with an invasion or some new stupid war that's not going to benefit us it's just going to waste our blood and treasure instead it's about what we can do here against this and now i've talked about how they've misdirected this towards supporting censorship but there's still a chance that positive things can result and i think one of the positive things is that it will lead to much greater support for a muslim ban which is still a positive even if the reasons for it are cringe and I just worry that too much obsessive focus on the protests and 
like crying over how they draped you know, Palestinian flag on Andrew Jackson, which I didn't like. But once again, that was their protests that they're doing are far less offensive and far and not nearly as bad as what the BLM protests were. And a lot of these people who are cheering on BLM are saying that they had a point are now crying bloody murder and wanting the National Guard to be called out against these protesters who are less violent and less obnoxious and less aggressive towards the historic American nation than the BLM. That's not saying they're good. I still think these people suck, and I still think that they hate uh, the people who made this country. I still think a lot of them are anti-white, but put in this perspective, Black Lives Matter was worse than these guys. I think is that a lot of these people are just looking for reasons to uh, make us hate them and that we then back censorship policies. But I'm for anything that does not involve, I as I always want to emphasize, my three policy core positions on this latest conflict are no war, no immigration, no censorship. And anything that supports those three things and does not go in the opposite direction, like pro-censorship, I'm generally in favor of, and I'm not going to criticize, but I do think that it is a little <laughs> concerning that this all comes about our immigration restriction and wanting to take on the left only comes about when they start criticizing Israel. It should be when they're criticizing white America, but... It is what it is. So I do think that there are some opportunities to be gained from this. Uh, obviously, I don't like the Palestinian protesters. I, they're clearly not on our side. I don't want to take any side with them. Uh, thing I want with the war is I want a quick end, so we don't have we don't get involved and we don't bring any more we don't bring any immigrants over, and we don't have more calls for censorship that could would all ultimately hurt us. And so that's what I want to say. So the push, the left's push for Islamophobia is just as bad as the right's push for, which actually it's just the establishment's push for more uh, concern over anti-Semitism. And that all this is going to be used to blame whites for it, even though they're not the culprits. And it's all going to be used to try to censor right wing speech than the people actually responsible for this stuff. And that's why something to be opposed to and to keep an eye on and to remain fervently staunch against. So that is the conclusion for our regular topic. Now we're going to go into the Convoli questions. And we're getting tons and tons of Convoli questions with every week. And you too can join that crowd if you sign up for the Convoli option at Highly Respected Substack. That's at highlyrespected.substack.com. And make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. So we're going to first go with a question I didn't answer last week. I said I would answer this week. And it comes from Fake Cell Eradicator. And he has got a question. He's like, two, what will the pivots and professional maneuvering look like after a Trump 2024 victory for the different types of DeSantoids analogous or not to post-2016 for National Review, Never Trumpers, Cruz and Rubio crowd? And he outlines what he could possibly see. He's like, one, type one, Fox News personalized. I see them pivoting back to MAGA with zero consequences. The Daily Wire cast of characters will probably be able to get away with this too. Two, the DeSantis influencer group chat. Bouchard will probably just move to have to move back to Eastern Europe and go back to work for Soros Open Societies. Will Cardio, Bill Mitchell, etc. just turn into schizos with Reply Guy, who Reply Guy in the Void? Ruben and other intellectual goober web types will probably find a way to act like none of this ever happened and that they are above and beyond party politics and solely focused on woke. Will Pedro Gonzalez's only option after this be joining the Lincoln Project? 
<laughs> Type three, those who are clearly DeSantoids but never fully throt but never full throttle attack Trump. Clay Travis, Steve Cortez, Chip Roy, Thomas Massey. Uh, most of them are going to be as what you outlined type one is that they're all going to pivot back to MAGA who will have zero consequences the people are going to have consequences are just not that important Dave Rubin can move back because he's got a big platform uh, the ones who are not going to be able to move back is that that's become their whole identity like John Cardillo Dave Reboy Pedro I, I think that they're so hung up on DeSantis and Trump and especially with the Twitter fights that I don't know where they will go. They're not going to be accepted by the Lincoln Project and stuff because the Lincoln Project and all those type of people have just become just a Democratic operative. Like they've totally abandoned Republican politics and they're certainly not going to accept people like that into their sphere. So I don't know where they go. I think a lot of them are trying to prep for supporting RFK Jr., I don't know how that will go. And a lot of these guys, unlike with Never Trumpers, the Never Trumpers were big elements within conservative movement. Bill Kristol, David French, Joe and Goldberg, all these guys were at the center of conservative movement and the center of conservative politics. The really diehard DeSantis people are not at the center of conservative politics. They're on the outside. They've built their own little club, you know, but that club, if they're totally opposed to Trump and they've made a name for themselves as being extremely anti-Trump, people are going to keep them in mind and remember them. And it's not and they're not going to be able to transition over to being Trump supporters. So it would be very bad with a, if, if a Trump 2024 victory happens. But I think even if you know Trump for some reason doesn't win, I think it would still be bad with them going forward. I mean, they are losing a lot of followers. A lot of people are very hostile towards them. I mean, even when people have questions and concerns about Trump, they really don't like the cheerleading for his persecution. They really don't like the using liberal talking points against Trump. They don't like this stuff. It's saying that the 2020 election was free and fair. And unfortunately, DeSantis is now taking a lot of these lines, which I don't know if unfortunately is it because he's just declining in polls and allowing me to do him to do more great guest appearances on the respected. But he is, uh, yeah, it's not going to go well. But no, most of them are just going to pivot back with zero consequences. Uh, Daily Wire obviously is like that. It's like how you outline. You know, it, it was the same with Never Trumpers. I think Kurt Schlichter is going to be a good example because Kurt Schlichter, he's not, a, doesn't go as far as Cardio and Bill Mitchell and co, but he is still very staunchly DeSantis. But he'll say, like, I'll vote for Trump and stuff. And he was a never-Trumper. He was a really hardcore never-Trumper in the primary. But then he switched over in the general election to being pro-Trump. And he was seen as a Trump, big-time Trump supporter when he was president. And I think people like that, they'll just transition over. The general election, once it's done, they'll turn into Trump supporters. Pete, you know, Trump will, Trump world will accept a lot, some of those people back. If they have a big enough platform, if they're important enough, if they're influential enough, and they show support from the general election, most of them will be forgiven. It'll just be the diehards like Pushaw, Brian Griffin, like the people really working for the campaign, really being anti-Trump. Ruben is probably the only diehard uh, influencer who will be allowed back because unlike them, he actually has a platform and he actually matters uh, to conservative public opinion much more than they do. So that is my answer to that question. Very good question. Now we're going to go to K-Max. We've got some other great questions too. But uh, K-Max has got a few questions, so we'll go to him. 
And he says, this is his first question. My signature is our sports question, Scott. Okay, Coach Bobby Knight of the Indiana Hoosiers passed away this past week. He coached a style of basketball where white players could do better. More a team-oriented passing game and not a slam dunk one-on-one Kobe Bryant-type basketball. No elite teams are like Indiana Hoosier basketball, and I wonder if there were rule changes that caused this. You don't see Bobby Knight-style teams anymore. I think it's just a development of athleticism with blacks is that uh, the especially with the I remember with AAU teams is that AAU teams when I was growing up became a lot blacker and it was like harder for white kids to per, uh, to play on these teams and this is where they develop the best high school talent and then that high school talent goes on to the college level and it was harder for white kids to stay on the team because they would be like the one or two white kids on the team and generally whites don't mature physically as fast as black kids do and so it would, you know, be an awkward sight. I know a kid who was on an AAU team, and they, one of the white other white kids got accused of saying the N word, and the rest of the team beat the shit out of him. And so both the white kids said, "Uh, yeah, we're not going to be on this team anymore." So they become it's become, I think, just a much blacker sport over time. And some of that is with the development of how they get these best high school athletes. I mean, I know the top high, one of the top high school prospects is a rural white kid, but also that kid was playing in an area where his even his travel team and other things would have been mostly white kids. And I know I think he tra- transferred to a high school, a bigger high school when he was more physically developed. But at that time, he you know he didn't have to worry about the bigger black kids intimidating him and stuff. And he was already confident enough in his game that he stuck with it. But when he was developing in his, when he was 13, 14, 15, he was in pretty much an all white area. And that's, and once he was there and, you know, fully developed, or at least for a high school player, he was able to transition out. So I don't know if it's just rule changes. I just think it's a, I'm probably not the best person to ask about this because I don't follow college basketball uh, as closely as a lot of other people, but I do know that for the AAU teams in when I was growing up, that they even in an area which I grew up in a very you know pretty white area, and even in that area, like the teams that these kids would sign up for, would still be majority black. In my high school, we were very good at all sports except for basketball because we had a nearly all white basketball team, and so we're getting our ass beat by these uh, much more diverse teams. Uh, much uh, more magical teams. So it's just that I think it's just over time as a sport. I think that they were able to get a lot of these kids from the ghetto. They were able to pick out the talent, get them into private schools, get them developed in the top tier athletes. And a lot of white kids who maybe weren't physically maturing enough were just like getting slam dunk on and getting owned by their teammates, decided to focus on other sports or on other things because they felt they weren't able to compete with these kids at that age level. And that's over time it came blacker. Because I know that Duke, you know, Duke University was always accused of being a white team too. And always attacked as the white team. And that's why everyone hated them. And But over time, they became a much more diverse, much more magical team. And I think that's just where a lot of the top talent is. But I think as this kid, I'm forgetting his name, but a lot of people were talking about him last week. He was from like rural Maine. I think if they're given an area where they're developing at the same rate as other kids 
and they're around people who are like them, they're able to develop into top tier talent and people are more willing to give them the top time of day. And so hopefully that we see more cases like that so we can see Bobby Knight. Bobby Knight was key. Bobby Knight endorsed Trump. He was definitely, he, people were getting mad about all these comments he had. There was one funny tweet where he had the story. He was like a very angry guy. I remember my family not really liking him because he couldn't control his anger and him being a massive asshole. He was an asshole, but he's still keyed and he supported Trump. So him being an asshole didn't matter. He, he supported Trump in 2016 when it was important. But he had this hilarious story that I asked him. is like, if you found out the world was ending in an hour, what would you do? And he's like, I would go watch a women's basketball game. And they're like, why? Because it'd be the longest hour of my life. <laughs> so um, we definitely, uh, RIP Bobby Knight, great uh, individual. And it's, I really have this theme I need to develop in an article and other, but I really think Republicans need to be recruiting football and basketball coaches, college football and college basketball coaches to run for Senate because I think all of them are like Tommy Tuberville and Bobby Knight and Lou Holtz. They're all very conservative. They're much more likely to be um, uh, awakened and red-pilled than a lot of other people. And they do have that kind of personal charisma that others lack. I think if we're always looking for people to recruit and they always go like, oh, how about these Navy SEALs and these veterans? Veterans generally are all over the place and uh, a lot of them just like, some of them are like Dan Crenshaw and stuff. And so they're very much of a, of a variable there. But I think if you see Tommy Tuberville and how awesome he is, you would have the same results if you started recruiting college football and college basketball coaches to run. And then people really like them. They have that charisma. They, they have that charm. They have that star ability. They're outside of politics. And they're able to see things in a way that people who are wanting to be politicians and have been in politics all their life are not able to see. And I think they're more capable of being red-pilled and based. And I think they deal with racial issues on a very personal, direct level when they're coaches. And they're able to see these problems more clearly than I think a lot of other people outside of that. And which is funny because most of them are coaching majority black teams. But I think at, in the end of the day, they still have um, a, uh, a an awareness that other people wouldn't have. And that's for coaches. I think the players who are with them, uh, especially with quarterbacks who've been there, there's been a lot of really cucked quarterbacks and football players who have run for office in politics. But for coaches... It's a different story. So we got to get more coaches in politics. But we'll talk more about that later on. And his second question from K-Max is, simple one here with the pro-Palestinian Hamas protests from the left in America. Does the Jewish vote actually change? Do more Jewish American people favor restricting immigration from Muslim countries? My sad feeling is just Jews, despite this, will pretty much vote 70% Democrat or worse and still favor open borders. Do you agree, Scott, or feel that these events will change the Jewish vote? I don't think we want Bill Crystal types Republicans joining the party anyway. Um, it would probably marginally change, uh, and it'll probably just change among older voters. I do think it's this stuff will make Florida even redder because a lot of those Jewish retirees who are getting worked up about like you know the anti-Semitic Palestinian protesters are going to be like, oh no, we got to get these people out. But among younger voters, uh, you know, Jewish voters among under fifty. There's not going to be much of a change. There's still going to be majority Democrat. You may have marginal changes. I think the only effect it would be is in Florida and maybe in some of these New York districts 
2024 that, you know, are battleground districts. I think some of the areas, if they do have a, you know, a significantly higher Jewish population, they would. But nationally, outside of those two places, I mean, Florida is already turning pretty much red. So it probably won't make that big of a difference. May make a difference in some of these New York districts, but otherwise, national, long term, probably not. They're still going to be voting Democrat. That's just the way things are. That's just the way that they're going to be. And it's also the fact that they're continuing to want to blame white Trump supporters and white right wingers for all this stuff, even though we're not the ones responsible. I think that's indicating of where their thoughts lie on that matter. All right, and to conclude, we have two questions from our favorite New England refugees. He's got two great questions for us. So his first question is, hey, Scott, November is Norwood Appreciation Month. It is time we recognize great Norwoods throughout our time. Great patriots like Stephen Miller, Matt Whitaker, and Ron on show a balding white man as, fo- as a foe the left hates. I don't know if some of those people would uh, count as white. <laughs> Who is your favorite Norwood on the right nowadays? You know, I, I have to... Give a shout out to Blake Neff. You know, Blake Neff, uh, he's now going on Charlie Kirk's show. And he, he was a, uh, a Tucker producer was fired for saying some uh, naughty things online. But he's uh, one of the favorite Norwoods we've got. I would say that would be one of my favorite Norwoods at the time. I don't know. if yeah. uh, We got to stand up Norwood pride. We got to stand up for Norwood pride. You know, Norwoods, you matter. You're, you're appreciated. Norwood lives matter. Uh, so we could say that with him. I got to give him some respect out there. Uh, favorite historically, you know, I think a guy who really shows what can, a Norwood could do is Wilhelm Furtwängler, who's the greatest conductor of the 20th century. He was a Norwood and he was getting, and he was also probably had some form of autism, yet he was getting a ton of women and being a total badass in his art. And he was making incredible performances of the classical repertoire and, I really do appreciate listening to Furt Fangler. And he, even though being a very goofy looking individual and a Norwood, he still strive to greatness. So we got to stand up for Norwood appreciation. We, we love our Norwoods and society is so mean to Norwoods. And even though they lack something that other people have, we should always admire and appreciate the Norwoods among us. So Norwood lives matter. And his second question is, is any prediction on the Kentucky election? Uh, between, uh, you know, the current governor, Bashir, and against uh, Daniel Cameron, who is the black attorney general, uh, it's it's neck and neck. People all thought that Bashir would win outright because he's a popular moderate Democrat in a red state. It's very interesting what's going to happen. I don't I don't really want to make a prediction because I... I don't, I generally don't know. And I was so confident in the midterms. I said the day before, I was like, oh, we're definitely going to win. Well, we sort of won the house, so I guess that was correct. Uh, But we didn't have as great of a result. And I am wondering what it's going to be like tomorrow. And all these elections tomorrow, there's three big races. I mean, there's a, probably might be a few. There's the Virginia Senate elections there's the Ohio referendum. They're going to keep abortion legal in Ohio. They're going to pass that constitutional amendment saying that they can't ban abortion in Ohio. It's just a question of how much they win by. Whether they may get 60% or maybe it just passes by like 53%. It's just a question of how much by. And in the Kentucky race, 
all three of them are hinging on, well, obviously the Ohio one's hinging on abortion, but even the two that aren't specifically about abortion, it's all about abortion. In Virginia, every damn ad from Democrats is this guy's a MAGA extremist who wants to restrict abortion. MAGA extremist who wants to restrict abortion. They interview abortion survivors, or I don't know what, what they would call them. And like, they're going to eliminate my right to choose. And then they have like these videos, these back alley abor- uh, abortionists and how dangerous it is it could be for women. And they're saying, if you elect this guy, that's what's life going to be. Obviously, none of these guys, Republicans are running on abortion. It's, it's not in Virginia, at least. And, but all the Democrats are. And even though the pro-life movement continues to emphasize how popular uh, their views are and abortion restrictions are, curiously, none of the Republicans are running on their positions. I wonder why. And so whatever happens tomorrow, it's going to be a referendum on abortion. If Republicans win in Kentucky and in Virginia, it's a sign that voters are caring about other issues more than abortion, that they're worried about the economy. They're worried. I, well, I don't know if in Virginia it would be a matter about foreign policy, but they're very much worried about the economy. They're worried about open borders. They're worried about crime. They're worried about these serious domestic issues that Democrats are just doing nothing on. And it's a rejection of Biden's policies and the rest of his party's policies. If Republicans lose those races, it's due to abortion. That's it. And that is, you know, the Trump factor from what I'm seeing in these ads, you know, I was seeing a lot more of the Trump factor in the 2022 ads where they would show January 6th footage and stuff like that. And even though they're saying MAGA extremists, they're saying MAGA extremists just in the case of tying them to abortion. It's all abortion. And in Kentucky, which went overwhelmingly for Trump, they don't want to emphasize like, oh, uh, Daniel Cameron is tied with Trump. It's like, oh, that would convince voters to move in his direction. Andy Bashir is just hitting him on abortion because he knows he's have a conservative deep red state. He can't run on these red meat issues that for Democrats can run on and say in Virginia and certain parts of Virginia, he has to just say, oh, I'm moderate. I'm, I'm strong on crime, too. I, you know, I support businesses. But guess what? The Republican extremists, they want to restrict your right to choose. And so if Republicans lose these two races and if the Ohio, it passes by an almost 60 percent margin, this is a massive, massive defeat for abortion. And this cannot be blamed on any other factors. You could have said in 2022 that there were other factors in play. You could have said Trump. You could have said Ukraine, maybe not even really Ukraine, but you could just say like January 6th stuff and and maybe bad candidates and maybe not a great turnout the vote or something. You could have claimed all this stuff. And I think actually a big reason why Republicans had disappointing results is that Democrats lifted a lot of these COVID restrictions and the COVID restrictions were ha- were a big part of the success for Republicans in 2021. And Democrats realized it was a liability and they lifted it and then voters forgot about it and they became less inclined to vote Republican. But also abortion helped Democrats as well. This time it's clear as day. It's all abortion. And so that's going to be the re- that's the point I want to make. If that, And I'm either going to write an article or do an IQ supplement on the races. If... So I would say it would be pro-lifers can say, you know, can 
you know, heave a sigh of relief, and so can Republicans if they do well tomorrow. If, if they win in Virginia and win in Kentucky, they can say voters are moving on from other issues. It looks very good for 2024. If they lose, it's a very bad sign, and it's also a sign that abortion is going to play a major factor in the 2024 race, and it's going to be very tough for Republicans in the next year. So we will focus on that when it comes. I don't want to give a prediction because I haven't been focusing on it enough. Um, and it, all the polls right now show it as in a dead heat. It looked like Bashir was going to win outright. Or, you know, polls earlier from like a month ago were showing him like nearly 10 points ahead. But now it's a dead heat. So we'll see. We'll see. But we'll cover that later this week. But that's it for Highly Respected today. If you had a cognitive question, I looked through them thoroughly, through the inbox thoroughly. I did not see any other questions from people, but if you did have a question, please, please just reply to me and I will get to it. And also, if you're on the Cognitive make sure to mark question in your submission so I can easily get to it. But that is it for today. We're going to have a ton of great content later this week, so be on the lookout for that. So until next time, stay respected.